0: Hello, I'm Magdalena Ball and I would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land where I am, the Awapakal people, and to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. Maria Tamarkin joined me recently for a multi-member panel with Sophie Hardcastle and Nicola Redhouse during the online Newcastle Writers Festival, and I enjoyed the session so much I knew I had to do one-on-one sessions with each of the participants. Also, we had a one-on-one session. Maria and I had a one-on-one session scheduled on the nature of time that was booked for the festival. And I really didn't wanna miss out on that discussion. So here we are. Maria, it's so good to be talking to you again. Thank you very much for joining me.
1: Thank you so much, Meggie.
0: I'm delighted to be talking to you. So before we begin chatting, um, can I ask you please to just open the session by reading a little from axiomatic? Um, Yes, um, so I'm going to
1: read from the middle of chapter four, there are five chapters, so it's kind of towards the end of the book, Um, and it's, uh, um, I I don't know, there is some life here, something that I can uh, still feel deeply uh, about this passage, so I feel like I can connect it may be in reading uh, and this is um, uh, how we sort of come to understand a connection that I have with one of the kind of main women of the book you know there are five main women of the book and one of them is Vera um, um, She uh, passed away um, uh, at the end of last year and uh, as I'm reading this this passage that I'm going to read is written in the present tense, so my heart will beat faster as I read this particular present tense, which is now a past tense, I guess. Um, Okay, I'll start, forgive the preamble. First, Vera and I went to her old butcher around the corner from Eklund Street, that's in Melbourne. Hello, good to see you, how are you? I'm still alive, as you see, still walking. I'm still alive too. A conversation not at all morbid, almost joyful. Then we went to Woolworths for some anti medicine and thick toilet paper. I understand how these words now resonate completely different, Woolworths, thick toilet paper, but you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to scoop up the new resonances as I, as I read this passage. The friend she was staying with in St Kilda had toilet paper you could put your fingers through. Then we walked to a Jewish deli on Balaclava Road. Vera wanted chopped liver. I knew the daily owner our daughters had played together in sunny pre-hormonal days. I hugged the owner. She comes here all the time, the owner said to me in Russian, looking at Vera. Then, she's a good woman. I was pretty sure Vera could understand what we were saying, but I still replied in Russian. She has quite a story on her. Yes, well, all my clients have a story on them, the owner said. The ones with tattooed numbers have pretty much died out, but the ones who still come here have a story and a half too. This was, I noted to myself, the best conversation the daily owner and I had had to date. In another shop, what were we buying? Something small and edible, I think. The men behind the counter wanted to know if we were related, which counts as small talk these days, one step up from topsy-turvy weather. We're friends, I said, hoping it wasn't too ostentatious to claim something we hadn't grown into yet. She's my granddaughter, said Vera. Shopping with Vera, the wildness, bigness of her, bursting out in the most banal microscopic exchanges, like a button on a blouse, plopping, popping, popping, not popping, and underneath is a patch of skin that speaks of another unfathomable life. I'm writing about Vera because she's done like all the other child Holocaust survivors I've ever met or read about. She drinks, smokes, parties, drops names, always has. She's prickly. She's had lots of men. The word people routinely use for her is outrageous. Other survivors tend to keep their distance from Vera. I'm going to skip a little bit. On the March of the Living, a three-kilometre walk from Auschwitz to Birkenau, she managed to piss off a lot of the Australian contingent, not only with her refusals to behave herself, but with her frequently declared love of Polish food and countryside. Loving Poland, no matter how complicated and contradictory that love, no matter that Vera was expressing her love in a new century, remains taboo for many survivors and their families. I'm skipping a bit just to get to... Um, the moment of our connection. Um, I first see Vera's name in a soupy news feature. A sentence near the bottom jumps at me and I know I must find her. We have enough people in common to form a small human bridge to get me to her. She once lived in Melbourne, no longer, but returns a few times a year. Email, Skype, she's on them. We meet, talk, soon it's clear. She's talking of us, she's taking over something like a quarter of the book I'm writing. My heroine, The book, the book, the book that I'm writing. When I go searching for Vera, I'm convinced it will be done in 12 months or 18 years. Fly 2011, 12, 13, 14, 15, etc. I console myself that books take as long as they take, the usual mantra. But it's different this time. This time it is like I have to choose between this book I'm writing and my conception of life. Most people, Vera said to me one day, don't know who I am, and I'm not going to start telling them who I am because I can't be bothered, so there you are, I might just end it here. Mm. It was not a smooth reading, um, but the bumps, we will not edit out the bumps, right,
0: we'll we'll, we'll keep the bumps. The the bumps are part of the joy of it, it's, it's, you know, you can get a smooth reading somewhere, I'm sure, but it's, it's really nice to, to sort of, hear it morph and change as well in in the context of where you are now, the way you're reading it, and and also what's happening in the world. Um, With Vera even, in fact, with Vera not alive anymore. And, you know, Vera's biography being written and, you know, all the different things that happened through the context of that almost makes it feel like the book is alive rather than a static object. Uh, It's really interesting. Thank you for saying this. This is like... A
1: wonderful, wonderful compliment, because that 's the fear you have that you go back to your book and it 's just it 's just sitting there or it's just reclining there it 's just you know to the side and and you cannot you cannot connect to it there 's just there 's no pulse uh, in it i mean it 's funny I was reading it, and I was painfully aware of my accent um, an accent is also a very alive thing it's mm-hmm. like on certain days it's just there, it just sits in your mouth and there's nothing you can do about it. You cannot rinse it out. And I was like, oh, my God, this accident is so heavy. But, you know, that's, that's um, you know, and then there will be other days and I will sound almost Australian, not quite, but almost, you know, I can almost pass, uh, but I'm not passing today. So it's just uh, one of those days. And uh, I think the um, the lockdown is making me kind of go back into the kind of more Uh, the heavier, accented English, interestingly enough, because I'm not interacting with as many people and I'm not just out in the world, so I'm kind of, my funny things are happening to the way I speak, and um, yeah, so there you go.
0: It's it's funny, my children used to tell me that I would yell in American. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) When you get stressed, it's it's kind of the childhood accent that comes out, but I, I mean, I'm thinking too that, you know, obviously Vera had an accent as well, and... And, you know, these voices of the women in the book are all part of that, I guess, the tapestry that you create through this book. And and you leave a lot open and you deliberately, that's your style, right? A lot is is open. And um, as it is with good poetry that, you know, the, the reader brings their own self to the work and their interpretations and their reading and what they have at that moment. And, and the book has enough space in it. It has enough air in it um, to allow for... Um, for those interpretations that, you know, none. And we've talked, we've talked in the past about narrative and about fixing people in a narrative, but it's, it's lovely to not fix them and to not fix the accent and to not fix the, the um, analysis of these people and say, this is who they are. Or this is, you know, this is their story but to say they are, and, and you, just in your reading just now, um, you talked about, you know, there are multiple Veras, and of course there are multiple Veras, and she's a complex character anyway, I mean, particularly complex. I guess all characters are complex if they're good, mm-hmm. but she's particularly complex in that she has those multiple layers, some that appear superficial and some that appear quite, you know, deep, and, and there's the trauma, and there's the, the lightness around uh, how she's um, working with that trauma, so it's It's really, really interesting um, that you have taken on that um, kind of almost anti-narrative style in the way in which you produce this book that allows these characters to be much richer than a fixed narrative would. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, thank you. And uh, I had this experience, uh, just you talk about not fixing things, and, you know, I I was just thinking how books, you know, maybe the kind of the normal conception would be that once the book is down and, and it's out in the world it's fixed I mean you can reissue it you can pulp it you know I guess you can go into shops and cross out lines in every individual book but th- there is this idea that it's fixed but actually And I don't know whether I felt that way. I can no longer remember myself 10 years ago. (laughs) So I don't know if I felt that way about uh, my other books. But with this one, it feels completely unfixed. It's like the fact that it's, you know, between the covers and it has its own life or lives doesn't stop me from feeling that it's completely unfinished. And I remember having this experience of um, doing an event at the Wheeler Centre heavily pregnant, um, just always on the verge of vomiting, thinking, will I be the first writer to vomit, you know, on the stage of the Willis Centre, et cetera, Uh, but with um, three women at the book and a dear friend who was um, sharing the session. Oh, yeah, well, thank you. Um, And I, and at the end of it, apart from, there were two kind of main urges uh, at the end of that session. One is to run home and hug my toilet. And and stay there for two hours. And the other one was to rip the covers of this book and to start again. Even though <laughs> like it almost killed me. You know, it took eight and a half years. It's so tiny. It's only sixty thousand words. Like it's, you know. And but instead of a sense of done relief, next thing or the glorious emptiness of kind of no books, kind of looming light in front of you, I was like, I need to start again. And this, and I, and for a second, I thought we are only ever writing one book our whole life. And it's good that I know this, you know, that I already know this. I just want to get in there. Um, and it was no longer a kind of a, a dreary feeling or something is not right, but it was just like this exhilarating feeling of just never being done with it. And uh, there you go. So when you talk about kind of not fixing um, uh, people and I always feel that that, that is kind of a... a, 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 a where I am at, it's a a kind of an ethical position that I have arrived at, but it's also just I I, I am there through kind of no perhaps conscious decision making on my part, but I just have come to kind of realise that I even think about sentences as floating around as I'm reading these, there is no particular way in which um, sentences land in my head or pre-land in my head like I don't know what they're going to do how they will come out of my mouth or what they're doing on the page and it's kind of like I mean I don't know uh, maybe in, in because we are in a state of kind of absolute upheaval. it just feels so fitting to feel like nothing is kind of fixable and and let's just accept that and be good with it um, and I feel good with it.
0: It's also in many ways the opposite of a soundbite, isn't it? It's the opposite of political language. It's the opposite of um, of treating things as kind of fixed and pat to allow for the complexity. And maybe, uh, you know, I wonder to a certain extent, and, you know, many of the people who write about in axiomatic are, are complex characters with, with a lot of trauma and a lot of... Um, baggage is probably the wrong word, but they come from... Um, backgrounds that they carry with them as almost you know almost like a backpack full of monkeys you know it's it's part of um dealing with that that pain is part of who they are and i think that's part of being a migrant as well um you know i I, and even a double migrant um i mean in in your case of course you're a migrant um i'm a migrant and and maybe I always feel almost a double migrant because um, my grandparents were part of that big Eastern European Jewish diaspora um, in the 1920s. So I always grew up feeling like a migrant, a child of migrants, even in the country that I grew up in. So migrating again, and I migrated first to the UK and then to here, but- Were
1: you second generation or third generation? I mean, it's interesting that were your parents, because you're talking about your your grandparents- My grandparents, yeah, third generation. Yeah, and yet you felt that you were the child of uh, migrants in in a sense, yeah? I think yeah.
0: so, yes, because people say, you know, where are you from? It's, it's just part of, and you always say, you know, Eastern European. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. I say American now, but it's it's not how when you grow up. It, mm. I think that you, you have that consciousness of being multiple things, that perhaps nationalism tries to... Move away from it to kind of anti that. It's saying, you know, we're we're one thing, and that that creates those closed doors. It creates prejudice. It creates, you know, a, a sense of um, us and them.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I and I, as, as you were talking, I was thinking about how every time someone says it's un-Australian. And I and I just and I feel like laughing because to me the, this whole idea of Australia and Australia just falls apart. I mean as much as the kind of the American dream or the Australian dream, this idea mm-hmm. of that there's people with kind of wildly divergent components within themselves and then to think and, and then you think um, about their families and then you think about kind of communities and then you just think about how much is in them and how many different divergent, uh, diverse and kind of um, interestingly contradictory parts. Uh, and if you think that you can encompass all of these people with words like Australian and American or un-Australian and American, I mean, you are what are you thinking? You know, you cannot. So yes, I I am totally with you um, about kind of this idea of, uh, you know, nationalism as a kind of uh, machinery for fixing identities. You know, we're talking about fixing and unfixing and uh, my God is just, it's just not working. I mean, it's just laughable. (laughs) Un-Australian. It's just like, what are we talking about?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's something of a theme in the book. I mean, I raise it not just because it's, an, you know, an interesting conversation, but I think it does run like a, a thread through this book, this idea of, you know, of, of not fixing these people and not fixing things, but ex- just exploring, just opening rather than closing the door to these people.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I, and I think as a writer, if you think you can get to the last paragraph in writing about a person... You cannot ever get to the last paragraph, the last full stop on anything, history, a moment, encounter, conversation, idea. But with people in particular, you can never get there and why would you want to get there? So this idea of kind of encompassing, encapsulating, you know, capturing, uh, and I write about this uh, in the book, uh, these were the ideas that I was very happy to abandon, uh, to to kind of recognise as antithetical to my idea of what it is to write about people uh in 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 in, in non-fiction texts and i don't know what fiction writers would say to me perhaps they would say that's precisely what we're trying to do we are trying to encompass and that's the greatest the greatest skill the moment of magic is that moment when for a second a circle is drawn fully around the person but you cannot do it with um real breathing human uh, beings, whether um, they're alive or no longer alive, nor, I think, should you want to. So, um, yeah, um, absolutely, I, 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 I totally and wholeheartedly agree
0: with you. And yet, that's it's kind of the mythos of story that we go into when we're writing, you know, we, we feel that constraint, you know, this has to have a beginning, middle and end, but, you know, there has to be a, a structure to it that, um, that is in some way bounded. But um, were you surprised at? I guess uh, were you surprised at the response? I mean, this is it's, you know, so many people love this book. It's it, it really has been a, a you know game changer in many ways. It's obviously won a great many awards. Were you surprised? Um, I guess at the the intelligence and the willingness of your mm. readers to to jump in that you know in that river with you. Um. Yes,
1: not anymore, but I can go back in my head and remember that I was surprised because I thought um, I will have some readers, um, but I thought that um, this was a difficult book. I wanted, it's not that I I wanted it to be difficult, it's that I knew that I needed to be difficult. Um, To do the work that I needed to do, that's what, uh, it had to be like, um, and I was not prepared to compromise on that or dilute it or make it friendlier, quote unquote. Particularly by inserting myself and saying, dear reader, you know, don't be scared uh, by this ideas, so, you know, c- come with me, hold my hand, all, all of that. Um, so I, I kind of, I, I wasn't sure. I mean, I, I, I felt utterly madly kind of committed to this idea of this book, just not. Um Not trying to second guess um the kind of response it might get, not trying to imagine that we just can't handle books like this, I uh, certainly was told by various people in the industry that um, this book was not um well, it was just going to be um, too hard. it was too unorthodox um, it didn't behave in a way we expect uh, books of nonfiction to behave um you know it was just it was just kind of spiky angular, shaped, uncomfortable book, Um, and even the title, I um, had some pretty negative responses to the title. So uh, why, you know, I'm now asking myself, you know, why was I – so insistent that I was just not going to compromise at all, I was just kind of just madly committed to you no know, compromise and uh you know and I would like to say now retrospectively that deep down, I knew that people were far more intelligent uh, that, um, than sort of uh, people in the industry would give them um credit um for and 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 there was maybe some kind of hunger for books for books of nonfiction that were not so formulaic because um, I think books of nonfiction, uh, particularly in America, <laughs> but but um, just in the English speaking world um, in the last 20 years, um, I think they, they have become very formulaic. I've spoken about this before. I'm not going to rant and rave about it. But, but just to say that maybe deep down in some dark unconscious of my mind, I, I had that sense. But frankly, I actually... Um, I had no idea. So the truth is I was surprised. I was kind of like build it and they'll come sort of (laughs) or build it and they won't come and you'll be sitting there alone looking at the (laughs) the thing that you've built. But regardless, you just have to build what you have to build. Um, So, yes, I and I'm just so damn excited for just other writers, other particularly younger writers who will, I hope that, for some of them, the fact that um my book um appeared to be appeared to do well appeared to be, you know what what's doing well commercially it hasn't done well at all dear dear uh um viewers, so you know it's absolutely hasn't sold anywhere near what a um sort of uh, sort of middle of the road cookbook would have sold so you know, a couple of years ago so uh but in terms of kind of you know just people reading it and and talking about it 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 it's sort of yes um. Um, certainly um did well if that's the if that's the language we want to use so just for those writers who come um who are kind of who may have to have or perhaps they already have had those conversations with their publishers or agents or whatever the editors saying you know this is too uncomfortable um this is too um this is not going to be um sort of well received this is not going to be um a, a book that um, sort of. Opens doors for you, etc. I feel that maybe it's like no, actually you know um, could be quite the opposite that um, if you insist on your um strange odd peculiar, idiosyncratic vision, uh, not for the sake of it uh, but because you know that that's the shape of the book you know that for the book that you are writing to have any kind of integrity, it needs to be what it needs to be, um they may well be uh, you know, uh, a, a pretty kind of happy story waiting for you uh, at the end of it. Again, not in terms of commercial kind of success, because um, if I did not have a job that I have at a university, you know, um, I would be uh, saying something else, I, I imagine, right now. But, uh, but, but in terms of, but in terms of a kind of a just the way it travels I guess through culture. And, um, um, it's just um, yeah, surprised and elated, just you know, not for me so much, I'm 45, you know, but like for people who are 25, 30, you know, 35, who will now say maybe, maybe they will say, no, no, I'm going to write a memoir, stuff you, like I'm just going to write my my strange book and and it will be fine and it will find its readers. So a very long rambling answer, forgive me. Um, Yes, surprise, number one, be elated.
0: That's great. That's wonderful. And, you know, I feel like it, the, there's a really interesting paradox between the structure of the book, the whole notion of an axiom as being a kind of, you know, fixed thing that we can at least, at least the axiom is true, you know, type um, thing. And, um, and the way in which you open out those axioms, of course, they're true. They're also not true at all. So it's, you know, it's really nice to have the that, that simultaneity. Of true and not true, and were you thinking of that when you began with the axioms was was that what drew you to the <laughs> the idea of these things that are true and not true simultaneously
1: yeah, and this idea that they are fixed, and I and they're like these fixed things in the landscape. Um, And because I wanted to do this kind of, I wanted to kind of perform this great unfixing of ideas and people, I needed something fixed to to do it around. Uh, And and I was drawn, um, yes, as you say, they are true and untrue and they speak of kind of, um, but they are untrue in ways that are really interesting um, and that kind of contain a lot of history and contain a lot of stuff worth looking at. Um, and, uh, I really, and the fact that they are kind of, so, you know, they're true, untrue, semi-true, uh, you know, other things, I feel like it's not just two things that they are, they're like many different things, but, um, um, allowed me to kind of form a relationship with them where I was neither kind of saying, uh, I was neither debunking them nor arguing for them, uh, that, what I could do, the kind of dance around this seemingly fixed things that I could do, that dance itself could not be fixed. You know, I wasn't doing like a cultural history. I wasn't doing like a kind of, you know, a polemical um, sort of book Uh, about you know um, needing to remember the kind of the what felt once self-evident to our ancestors because it still contains you know grains of truth or whatever or like these are the things that are holding us back from seeing how the world really is so I didn't have to kind of take a sledgehammer to them and start hitting them or hitting my readers with you know so I could do something kind of Uh, something that I couldn't even fully anticipate, you know, like I didn't know what it was going to be, but I knew that I wouldn't find myself in that fixed kind of position that so many nonfiction writers who are interested in ideas, uh, not, not, not kind of just people. When I said not just people, people are everything right, but people and animals and plants are everything but 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 none, but nonetheless, you know who want to go there, who want to think on the page, and you find yourself in these fixed places uh, having a kind of a inadvertently uh, taken on a role of a historian or a debunker or an advocate or an activist or a you know and i was like how can i just fall between the cracks in in every kind of conceivable way and and i think axioms by virtue of being fixed allowed me the kind of not to not you know to to
0: kind of to fall between the cracks around them like the impact of a constraint um, but I, I feel also, and I just want to very briefly, because we, we're we're almost out of time. But I want to talk a little bit about time, <laughs> um, and because it's such a critical part of the book, and we have spoken briefly about time before. But um, there are different types of time that you, particularly in the chapter that you you read from, "History Repeats Itself." Um, I think that was the chapter you were reading from. Um, you talk about um, the different types of time: chronological time, experiential time, cyclical time. Um, you know, existential time and how these different forms of time exist side by side, um, and the way in which you created these kind of multiple, multiple temporalities for your characters, and, you know, in a broader sense, this kind of philosophical thread, the river, if you like, that runs through the book.
1: Um, and what are you asking me? I love listening to Keep Talking. <laughs>
0: Okay, so Can, we Can we talk about those types of times, but also um, about real time as well, which is a notion you've, you've referred to. Um, in, you had an interview with Murray Juchot in which you said that um, your readerly desire was to read books where the writer responds to their material uh, acutely and honestly in real time as they're researching, thinking, being thrown around writing. Um, so, how do you feel? I guess the question, sorry for not, <laughs> I could just wrap it on. Um, but the question is really um, how do you feel that these different forms of time pan out in the book? Or how did you play with them? How did you work with those having so many different definitions of time happening simultaneously? And I feel you pulled it off, but you know, and this memory as well. So, how do you pull all those threads together? Yeah. Look, thank you.
1: Thank you. Um, uh, very much I mean I mean the question of how time flows through each chapter and then through the entire book was the hardest question, and I think that's um something that i uh to claim that I knew how I was going to do it, that it was all intentional and I was both philosophically and technically equipped um to sort of um do that would be an absolute repugnant lie. I had absolutely (laughs) no idea. I, I had some feelings and, um, kind of, um, half murky, half ideas about, um, about wanting to create, um, a sense of um, time. So for instance, in the first chapter, I know you talked about the very chapter, which is chapter four, but sort of what comes to mind is sort of the first chapter, which is, which is called time heals all wounds. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I talk uh, primarily, there are other things going on, primarily about the young woman who lost um, her uh, sister to suicide and in fact found her. Um, and I didn't want to write it either in a chronological uh um, way or reverse chronological, from the present moment backwards, or even in a kind of chopped up. <laughs> sort of you know, moving between different uh sort of time frames, I wanted things you know you talk about things existing simultaneously that 's what I wanted. I wanted this powerful kind of you know and, and you used the word river twice in our interview already, which pleases me very much um so I wanted these kind of multiple rivers to be flowing all the time, so you know the um the kind of time when I met her uh the time um you know um the time when she discovered her sister, which I can only know through talking to her and, of course, I cannot know but just can sort of see the outer shape of occasionally and then the kind of the moment of me writing. Uh, And I wanted, I didn't want simply to move between these times. I wanted them to coexist and to be and for us to hear the other subterranean river while we are, you know, in the river of, say, the current moment, but to hear the, that, you know, the time and the sound of time from 10 years ago and then the sounds of time flowing and whatever else it does because it does other things than flow, right? Um, and interesting to think about it. I've got no smart things to say about it, but I will, <laughs> I, will, I will think about it. So, you know, how to, how you know, I've wanted them to kind of, Contaminate each other and and to coexist and to be interfering with each other, but in a sort of almost sub molecular way almost you know that where you can read a book and not hear it. And, and and still have, I think, a decent experience of being immersed in something and, um, and, and, and and kind of going deep into people's lives and ideas and so forth. But you may just catch that strange sound and, and it may call you and you may try to figure out what is, what is it that I'm hearing. And it's like the sound, the sound of 10 years ago, the sound of five years ago, et cetera, et cetera. So I had this kind of the task of trying to do it within each chapter and, of course, each chapter has a different kind of has different needs around time, how time needs to be represented. But then I had the book as a whole, you know, how do I deal with the thing that runs right through it? So, and and I think I couldn't have done it without uh, my partner, Christian Ryan, who edited my work uh, and uh, sort of gave himself to the edit. Uh, And I think this was something that we needed to, sort of um dedicate ourselves to and, and and try and and this was like this was like a huge task and I realized because you know uh, I'm sure all writers of fiction and all poets know that you know all works of literature are about time and the biggest the biggest um issue that you can conf- issue is the wrong word but the biggest theme but also like a problem that you confront is a writer is time but I didn't know that till I got to this book. I was kind of on my merry way with my other books and I had no idea. And then I had like this epiphany. Oh my God, that is, that is what it's all about. That is what, what is at stake. And that is what's the hardest thing to do. Um, So yeah, absolutely. And in terms of what you mentioned um, about real time, I just, there is a certain, again, in nonfiction, there is a certain past tense, a very comfortable past tense, which is all emotional and, you know, has all these flourishes and all has all these kind of pockets of depth. But it's a very comfortable uh, past tense in which, you know, uh writers of nonfiction talk about stuff, right? Uh, and I just and I'm very familiar with that and I've written plenty of things uh, in, in the sitting within that very nice warm bath that is that past tense. Uh, and I just wanted to yank myself out of there and to try to write uh in a kind of a in a less comfortable, less knowing, uh um, more at stake um you know sort of a way um which kind of took me to this idea of um um writing writing um in the moments in in a sense where you cannot go back and prettify and uh, smooth out um and uh reorient your writing uh, to make it seem more coherent or to even make it seem more um ethically thought through etc cetera, etc cetera.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, Which is perfect for writing trauma as well, because time stops in many instances. It certainly stops. um, I think there's a scene even in in the first chapter where there's this kind of clock that has stopped at the point at which, or in in some respect, um, the sister has died. And um, the sister kills herself and the other one kind of sees that. I don't know what the chapter is, but i there's a point at which time stops, and I guess the point of of trauma is a point at which time kind of stops, and you almost remake yourself from that point on um with this new thing that you carry around i mean any experiential time is funky, it's not an arrow, <laughs> so it's you know it is extraordinary that you've you've captured that and um and I think we could probably talk about time for another three four hours but <laughs> um, i <Yeah. laughs> Do you have any plans? (laughs) One day over dinner. I I would love it. Um, So I, I know this is an unsettling time and so much is going on and we're, interestingly, and also... Difficulty in a difficult way. We're forced to concatenate our home lives with our work lives Children's schooling creative life, um, and it seems to be forced into a denser space But I still imagine that you have some creative projects in hand. Is there anything you can talk about that? You know, you're working on right now
1: um, I have lost ability to think um, and ability to write I honestly have not written anything um, apart from emails, endless emails to um, my students, not only, um, some emails to my friends. Um, I, um, I, I find that the pressure for us to have uh, a creative time now um, um, is something that, uh, at least for me, I need to uh, be very clear-eyed, clear-eyed about and resist. Uh, because it's just not happening for me. I'm doing other things uh, other than being, and, and you know, obviously something is happening, but nothing is coming out of me. So I am in a, you know, what was that saying? Time to, you know, uh, gather and, and time, I, I can't remember. But anyway, I was going to say something vaguely uh, wise, but that's just not happening. Uh, now fermenting. <laughs> which is a. Uh, an example of exactly what I'm talking about uh, that is um, so I am, uh, I nothing, nothing is uh, coming out of me and uh, nothing is, nothing feels urgent. I do not feel creative at all. Um, having um, three children at home. So the only, the only thing I have my energy for is kind of for caretaking. So that's all, you know, taking care of my students uh, to the extent that I can um taking care of my you know family members um and then watching a scandinavian uh um cop show before we die uh, at night uh, when i can no longer move uh, is that a recommendation drink alcohol that's how bad it is um so yeah so all these things yes there are creative projects there are but they are they feel so distant i cannot make myself care about them i just I just don't care. I'm not. Um, I'm not having a personal renaissance. I am just. Um, I feel um, small um, and oriented towards human beings, not towards projects. And I just um, that's that's. And I say this without regret. I I say that with interest because I think we are observing ourselves as well as the world around us, and we are kind of going, "Oh, that's what's happening to me." So it's just a great account of what's happening. For me, um, Maggie, it's just <laughs> which is nothing on, on some level, and then lots of things on another level.
0: Of course, of course, and I do think, and you know, we we again we talked about this last time, and um, I won't harp on the amount of time that axiomatic took because um, I I think it, I, I hope you didn't take that wrongly last time um, that I took comfort from. Oh, I was it. entertained. I loved it. I I actually do think that we live in a society that you know overhypes speed and um, overvalues output and speed. And yet nobody cares, like nobody actually cares how long any particular piece of work took. It'll still be, you know, when it comes out, people will still either love it or not love it. Or, you know, nobody goes, you know, that took a long time. They just go like, wow, a new novel from, you know, or a new book from um, the overnight success. So I, I, I again, I think time is a is a strange thing, and speed is a strange thing, and um, you know, taking more time over things and um, and caretaking is everything we need right now. So um, that's valid. <laughs> yeah, look, <laughs> I, I think it's a good.
1: Response. Yeah, look, I, I feel like this. The, the pressure to complete things when they're not ready to go, I think that's a very big problem. I think it's a very big problem for many writers for young writers in particular when they um say yes it's done when they know that no it's not done because you know they are their door is being knocked on very very loudly by people and forces and needs and whatever um so i um i i am I feel like And also I just, I can't do anything about how it is for me. I just, you know, if I write something that I hate and I I think I look at um, sort of stuff that has been written about, you know, the current moment and I was trying to find something to give to my students to read and I couldn't find anything that I felt would be read you know, five years from now, 10 years from now, 50 years from now, um, I, you know, I couldn't, it's possibly it's because of the state I'm in or I'm not reading widely enough or I'm only reading in two languages, not in 10, but um, it's, um, you know, I I I think that um, – we need to respect how long things take and this idea of productivity is a shitty idea and the way that it's linked to art, how we argue for the validity of art in terms of productivity in this country, etc, etc. Other people have made that point, I, I won't go on about it, but if we just can just break down this idea of productivity and the hold it has, uh, on us as well as on institutions and structures um, around us, I I think it will be uh, a very, very good thing. I mean, uh, the only reason to do things fast is because, uh, you need to feed your family or you need to, you know, you need to take care of, of human beings who cannot uh, wait for you to finish. I, 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 I honestly feel that's, that's, the, that's the only reason. Otherwise, hot takes and books that, you know, Slavoj Žižek's book on the, you know, in the pandemic, I mean, they, they will just die, you know, very, a very quick death and they contribute nothing, I think, to, to the world.
0: Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So, um I'll probably end it there and let you get back to caretaking. Um, but thank you so much. It was wonderful. And thank you so much for um, for joining me today. And I'm just going to hold up your book again because it is, it's a, really an extraordinary piece of work. And, um, uh, you know, more people should be buying it, not just uh, talking about how great it is. So um, get get a copy from your local, hopefully, bookshop. And thank you very much. I'll include links to purchase on your website, and. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. I love talking to you. Thank you. Let's do it again.